Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and we're here today with Dina Feinberg, who is the author of Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Frontlines, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, 2021. Welcome, Dina, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we'll talk here on New Books Network and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies today a little bit about uh, Dina Feinberg. She is Assistant Professor in Modern History and History BA Director at City University of London. Professor Feinberg earned her PhD in Modern Russian and Modern U.S. History from Rutgers University in 2012. Dina held research fellowships at the Rutgers Center for Historical Analysis, the Center for the United States and the Cold War at New York University, and the Research Center for East European Studies at the University of Bremen. From 2013 to 2016, Dina was Assistant Professor of East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam. Professor Feinberg's research was published in Cold War History, Journalism History, and several edited volumes. And together with Artemy Kalinowski, she is the editor of Reconsidering Stagnation, Ideology and Exchange in the Brezhnev Era, published by Lexington Books in 2016. So I want to um, start right away, Dina, and, and talk about Cold War correspondence and what motivated you to get into this research. How did you come to it? So when I was um, thinking about graduate studies, I wasn't sure whether I want to become a Soviet historian or a U.S. historian. And so I opted for the Cold War because that was the one area where I didn't have to make that choice, where I could study Soviets and Americans at the same time. This very particular topic uh, started as a seminar paper in the history of U.S. journalism that I did in my very first semester at Rutgers. And for that seminar paper, I read books that American correspondents wrote after their assignment in the Soviet Union. I then found out that Soviet journalists also wrote such books. And so I started reading these books kind of together. And so these were books that American and Soviet foreign correspondents who were stationed on the other side of the Iron Curtain wrote about the other side and about their assignments. And these were very detailed accounts where journalists provided rich descriptions of the Soviet Union or the United States. They talked about their professional and personal experiences. And these books were peppered with kind of great stories and thoughtful analysis of life on the other side. What was really interesting and surprising is how much the books revealed about the journalists' view of their own societies. And it struck me really that an invitation to read these books comparatively and to draw parallels between the Soviet Union and the United States was embedded in these texts, both uh, implicitly and explicitly. So it really interested me that in two such very different political systems and very different media cultures, the same group of people, that is professional journalists, was responsible for representing the outside world to domestic audiences, and that as they were doing so, they also reflected on the Cold War rival and on their own countries. 
I subsequently learned that uh, at the end of the Cold War, the work of American and Soviet foreign correspondents had been assessed differently. And so American reporting from the Soviet Union was and still is remembered as an accurate and very objective portrayal of how things were. Soviet reporting from the United States uh, was depicted as propaganda that on purpose misrepresented reality and casted a negative light. And that was really surprising to me because my reading of these books showed that things were not so clear cut and that associating one set of journalists with truth and the other with lies just just don't do justice to these sources and uh, to the way these people wrote. And I was really interested that Soviet and American correspondents like kind of like claim to be speaking the truth. And I decided that these claims should be taken seriously. And one of the central questions in the book is then what truth meant for American and Soviet correspondents and how their claims to speak the truth produced diametrically opposed narratives about what the Soviet Union and the United States were really like. And kind of working on this project was, I realized that this project offers a vantage point into many things that interested me as a scholar and as a person, representations and imaginations of self and other, the relationships between personal and collective identities, the role of media in society, and what was it like to live through the Cold War and be personally involved in the events that we associate with the Cold War. And as I worked more on this, I also realized that this project is also about the relationship between news media, ideology, and foreign policy. And this is also another angle that I examined in the book. So Dina, I'm really interested. Um, I think that's a good opening statement. Uh, maybe you could talk to our audience about your understandings of truth and lies and journalistic practices and how, let's say, the truth of meaning the truth of facts, the truth of representations, as N Natalia Rudakova and others have written about, um, affect your journalists and, and how you know this sort of changes over time during the Cold War. So one of the things that um, made international reporting special in the Cold War and made international reporting as a special site of uh, Cold War knowledge production is that journalists belong to a profession where truth-telling was uh, both a requirement and a source of legitimacy. So both Soviet and American journalisms claim to bring the truth to people and claim to speak truth to power. They both claim to adhere to professional practices and uh, truth-telling standards. But the way that journalists on both sides understood truth and the way they understood speaking the truth was also shaped by their respective professional and uh, political cultures. And I am using a lot of Natalia Rudakova's uh, work here, and I want to thank her for shaping my own thinking on uh, these matters, both with her book, but as through our conversations, Natalia had been incredibly generous to me. Uh, for many years and was very influential in my work. Um, so establishing and accurately reporting facts are and were central to American journalistic practice. 
another thing that was central to American journalistic practice is the distinction between professional journalism and fiction and the distinction between reporting the news and interpretation. And the central kind of premise in American, in the truthfulness of American press is this idea of journalistic objectivity, uh, which imagines journalists approaching the world as a disinterested realists and uh, to the best of their knowledge, providing the public with an unbiased account of reality. And this idea also translates into several professional practices that were designed to ensure the objectivity of the press. So for example, presenting multiple sides of an issue, identifying something as a fact only when you can support it with uh, verified evidence. And again, distinguishing reporting, that is what happened from interpretive journalism, that is from analysis of what happened. Um, In uh, the Soviet Union, the Soviet press really self-consciously projects and incorporates socialist ideology and values. Soviet journalists imagine themselves, like Soviet writers, as engineers of human souls. That is, people who shape the citizens of socialist society, educate and enlighten them towards becoming better socialists. And uh, again, as Natalia Rodakova's work shows, Soviet journalists considered factual accuracy to be of secondary importance to the moral truth of socialism. And as a result, as again, she shows that Soviet journalistic practices often borrowed from literature and um, feature different kinds of techniques, like selective presentation of material, like speaking to your readers um, also as a person through your articles, like sharing the process whereby you arrived at the story and the moral values that um, you present in your story, describing your protagonists in a world and kind of really a lot of uh, narrative enhancements that they use. Um, And so one of the central features in Soviet journalism is this thing called Ocherk, journalistic essay, which uh, is a short contained story that has kind of a moral value to it, that has um, an additional meaning that aims to tell you something about kind of the universe, uh, the larger kind of issues and moral and universal issues through a focus on specific individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to a lot of that because I think our listeners might be familiar with some bureau chiefs and U.S. journalists who um, have their missions to Moscow. And, you know, you do cover a lot of um, the big figures like Harrison Salisbury, for instance, but maybe you could introduce the Russian side or the Soviet Russophone side. Um, Who are some of the journalists that you found most interesting? And then, of course, you know, how did you go about and do the research and get their, you know, archives and papers and those sorts of things in order to examine their practices and personalities? This is a great question, and thank you. So, Most Soviet journalists who cover the United States throughout the Cold War were actually pretty new to journalism. They were young people during the war, and immediately after the war, they 
usually became students in all these elite Soviet institutions that are rapidly producing cadres for international work. Um, and there are the central institution for this is NGIMOA, Moscow State Institute for International Relations. Another important university is MGU, Moscow State Institute, Moscow State University. Sorry, and um, these people are these universities are training people for the expanding Soviet international apparatus, which at the end of the war, for a set of reason, lacks people who can speak foreign languages lacks people who have deep knowledge of foreign cultures and kind of the Soviet international apparatus is expanding and it needs people. One of these expanding areas is international departments of Soviet newspapers that really need young journalists who can do all these things. So many of my protagonists um, trained in MGMO and some of the people, um, some of the Soviet people that I follow throughout in the book are Genrich Baravik, uh, Stanislav Kondrashov. So Baravik was a correspondent for Novosti Press Agency and the Literaturna Gazeta. Stanislav Kondrashov was a correspondent for Izvestia. Melor Struva, also a correspondent for Izvestia. Boris Strelnikov uh, for Pravda. And uh, I also touch occasionally on others, uh, people such as Valentin Zorin, who is probably more familiar than others um, in the West. So what unites these people is that they were trained in these institutions in the early 1940s, and all of them kind of arrived to journalism by mistake. So, for example, Baravik has stellar grades. Uh, he's facing a very bright career in the Soviet Foreign Service, and then uh, two recruiters from the intelligence come to interview him, and they notice his very unusual patronymic, which uh, and so they ask him, what, what is that patronymic? And he says, oh, it's a Jewish name, means with God's help. So the interview finishes. They said, oh, we're going to call you. They never call him. And so he's effectively facing this really unusual Soviet situation of being a graduate of a super prestigious institution without a job lined up. This is the late 1940s or 1950s. The anti-cosmopolitan propaganda campaign is in full swing. And so Boravik is looking for work. And he finds work as kind of a junior editor in Aganyok, effectively. Aganyok is the glossy Soviet magazine, um, effectively initially editing the captions of the pictures. And the way he finds that job is through the help of his friend, Boris Strelnikov, who is another hero of this book, who is at that time a junior editor in the International Department of Komsomolskaya Pravda. And after Stalin's death, um, these young men are promoted to very prestigious posts of Soviet correspondents in the West. And there was a clear hierarchy, kind of Soviets, uh, Soviet newspapers assigned greatest value to international reporting from capitalist countries. And uh, these kind of New York, Washington, Paris, London were the most prestigious uh, posts to have as a Soviet correspondent. So many of these relatively young journalists got promoted to these super important posts in the early 1960s. What they did between 53 and kind of before taking these posts is they, they served in uh, smaller international posts. So they would go to 
conflict zones and uh, foreign countries. So, for example, Stanislav Kandashov first go- first goes abroad as uh, as a correspondent for on the Suez crisis. His reporting from the Suez crisis is so impressive for his best editors that they appoint him as the correspondent uh, responsible for Middle East and North Africa, which is a huge area, and he lives in Cairo and travels around. He spends there five years and then takes over the very prestigious post of a New York correspondent for Izvestia, and he will remain in this post for years. So there are a lot of kind of these stories of people who were not necessarily fitting or chosen for careers in foreign service and who arrived to journalism and made really, really distinguished careers in Soviet international reporting. And they spent, what is also interesting about Soviet correspondents is that they had spent many years reporting from overseas. So, for example, Strenikov would be Pravda's correspondent in the United States for 15 years, which is a very long time. Kondrashov had two assignments six years and seven years long. So, again, these are... Um, these were really long assignments that assignment that shape these people's um, professional lives and understanding and sense of belonging and um, and so on. I guess I, I guess you know I'm really interested in several personalities. Strelnikov and, and Kondrashev, I, I think, are, are are so important at the really at the heart of your book. I, I mean, I love the story even about. Um, Melor Starua, who who stops his car. I think this is in the sixties. They're they're all under FBI surveillance. He gets lost on one of his trips and then goes and and asks the surveillance team for um, directions. So I, I guess you know I was sort of really interested in their missions, the missions especially of the Soviet um, correspondents in the United States, where they can go what they can't do. Obviously, you know, they're refused by bureaucrats and, and officials. They can't visit Southern states. Um, I mean, how does that evolve over, over time? And, and how do you see that reflected um, in some of the research that you've done through, through their memoirs and private papers? So it evolves, um, it evolves interestingly, and it was in tandem with the restrictions that are confronted by American correspondents in the Soviet Union. So the treatment of uh, Soviet journalists in the United States and American journalists in the USSR is governed by rules of reciprocity, uh, which means what you do to us, we do to you. We're going to have 20 correspondents, so you can have 20 correspondents. We're going to delay visa to Strelikov, so somebody else's visa, American's visa is going to get delayed. The areas, all journalists, um, Soviet journalists, could not travel to particular areas, and the geography of where it is they could and couldn't go evolved together with the Cold War. So the restrictions were pretty severe in the early years. Um, they could not move more than 40 miles um, radius, be, behind 40 miles radius um, away from their place of work which means uh, the capital for Washington correspondents and the UN building for New York-based correspondents. And again, these um, restrictions kind of mirror the restrictions that American journalists are facing in the Soviet Union. Then as the relationship between the two countries improves and evolves, so do more areas open. 
still Soviet journalists had to approve, to submit their itineraries in advance to the State Department and the Justice Department. And they had to have um, special permission to travel to particular places. There is a map in the book which shows where it is they could go and where it is they couldn't go. Um, And sometimes whether or not they could go places really depends on the whim of uh, a handling official. And so the example that I give in the book is that Kantoshov wants to go to the Deep South, but he's not allowed to go to the Deep South because the person handling out his application thought it would be ill-advised to let foreign correspondents see um, what's going on and kind of have eyewitness access to these uh, to the to the racial uh, disturbances that happen in the Deep South. Now, the way to find out about these things, and this was probably the hardest part of my research, because um, the Soviet archival record is very much incomplete. For instance, uh, the Pravda editorial archive was closed to researchers for the entire time that I worked on this project and uh, is still uh, closed to researchers today, as far as I'm aware. Um a lot of um, personal papers is not something that could have been very easily accessed. So to get at them, it was a combination of uh, reading their memoirs and the things that they have published. Interestingly enough, American sources on dealing with Soviet journalism, Soviet journalists in the United States were quite in abundance. And so to understand the US side of things, I could actually follow through State Department documents. But also in several cases, I was super fortunate that um, two of my main protagonists, that is uh, Baravik and and Sturua, are still alive and uh, were much younger when I started the project. And so I had very excellent interviews with them, uh, working on this research and trying to understand how things were. Boris Trenikov's children um, generously spoke to me for this project as well and shared memories and photos and things that they had. And uh, finally, Stanislav Kondashov's son um, allowed me to work in his father's private archive, which was amazing and kind of not, I don't, not even a tip of an iceberg of this archive made it into the book, unfortunately. But it was a very rich source that also helped to understand. So between all these different types of documents, I could follow the individual stories of the journalists and to try to tell uh, about their experiences as people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see this, you know, really humanistic dimension, if, if I may say so, correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there seems to be a, a lot in common that the correspondence on both sides had, despite all of their anxieties and mutual suspicions, they're, they're very interested in the character of the average American or the care for better or worse, the character of the average Soviet citizen. Um, and there's a whole lot of essentialism and stereotypes there, but I mean, how do they begin to reach their audiences as part of the thought generation and, and beyond in telling their stories and getting to the, the realities, if they can, of everyday life? I think they start 
with uh, articles, and these would be kind of longer articles on um, small aspects or small curious aspects of uh, everyday life. And this is something that indeed begins in the thaw between 1945 and 1953. The reporting is very much um, lacking relatable or recognizable Soviet or American characters. So American reporting is, again, about the Soviet system very, very broadly. And the only personal experiences that you get is the personal experiences of the besieged foreigners in Moscow. In Soviet reporting, you get these kind of giant aggregates of people. So the suffering toilet masses, the oppressed racial minorities. So again, you don't have actual living people. Uh, Only kind of a lot of slogans and masses uh, systems are more prominent in uh, reporting before 1953. And um, after Stalin's death, there is a great opening and much interest in reporting about everyday life and, and, and everyday life as it is lived on the other side of the Iron Curtain, because each side is had spent years being frightened of each other, thinking that there is a nuclear war with these people. So who are these people? Are they going to attack us? What kind of people are these? And they really want to know. The questions start from the journalists themselves, but also their audiences. What kind of people are there and what are they like as people? And uh, the most basic questions are, so how many kids do they have? Do they have pets? <laughs> do they go to the movies? <laughs> what? How many rooms is there in the house? What's in their yeah. shops? Uh, what do they? What do the kids learn at school? So really, kind of basic questions, and you see how journalists start answering these basic questions first in articles that would be you know occasional walking away from summits and international developments and just talking about the regular lives of people on the other side, and later on with books. And uh, a lot of journalists wrote books about the rival superpower, and it worked really well for them because it allowed them to explore all these questions and to talk about all these issues without being confined to news relevance, without being confined to the length of columns to really reflect on you know, the national characters, us and them, what kind of people they are. And uh, the more we progress with the years, the more of these books are published. It also does an interesting thing. For example, the United States, this is in part a response to the rise of television and uh, radio as a competitor to the printed press. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, (laughs) please. uh, How how would your list... um, you know, beat these uh, these media be- being relevant, and they they choose to do so by providing these in depth accounts. Uh, same interestingly happens in the Soviet Union, only that the competition is actually foreign radio stations, which are seen as um, competing with Soviet press for audiences and uh, providing information, and so both sets of correspondents in different ways start to establish themselves as experts on the rival superpower. And we see throughout the Cold War on both sides, this rise of a journalist as an expert and as a pundit, um, somebody who is knowledgeable about the other side, who becomes the source of knowledge that is interested and accessible and that people really, really like to read. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a, a couple of great examples. I wonder if you could talk about um, Smith, you know, Hedrick Smith, the Russians, and then his sequel, The New Russians, um, or perhaps Robert Kaiser. That's another really good example, at least on the U.S. side, the American side, um, their ideological biases and how that reflects their long-form re- reporting. I mean, there are other examples later on, like David Remnick and eventually The New Yorker, but I mean, I'm I'm really curious in how someone like like Smith or or Kaiser um, change if they change at all in their understandings about um, eternal Russia and the Russian character. I mean, wh- why do you think their their work is is so popular, and and what sort of prejudices or biases or practices do do their works reflect? Wow. Um, it's so a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. Um, so um, Smith, Hedrick Smith, uh, came to Moscow in the summer of 1971 to head the Moscow Bureau of the New York Times. And um, his book, The Russians, became an international bestseller that was uh, reprinted in several editions. It was uh, it, it really had kind of an incredible life, this book. It was assigned to college students in the United States. People read it as a guide before going to Russia. People in tour agencies in the United States would give this book to people who are bound to the Soviet Union. Um, And another famous journalistic personality and a famous book of the time is Smith's counterpart in the Washington Post, that is Robert Kaiser, um, who also comes to Moscow to have the Washington Post Bureau in '71. And uh, stays pretty much at the same time, and their books uh, come at the same year, pretty much head to head. Kaiser's is called Russia, the People, and the Power. I have thought a lot about these particular books in my research, and um, they both made an effort to travel around and to speak with as many people as possible for their books. And uh, to provide a really kind of comprehensive picture of what Russia is like. And I interviewed both of them for the book. And each of them said that they, what they were interested in is, um, is what, the kind of stuff that they couldn't read in academic books, the kind of stuff they, they couldn't read in uh, you know, the newspapers at the time. What these people are like, why are they like they are? Uh, what's going on there, and to really kind of understand um, the Soviets on their own terms. And I think the two books are are really exceptional in their breadth and their depth and um, in their effort to provide the comprehensive analysis of the Soviet Union and Soviet national character and really kind of reflect on the Russian national character. So there are biases in these books, and these biases um, would be sort of unavoidable. For example, these are American journalists, and they are very much interested in consumption and the state of Soviet shops, because this is something that plays a role in American culture, because um, Soviet-American competition for 20 years has been unfolding along the promise of delivering similar lives. So the Soviets have promised their people to deliver similar lifestyles as the United States. And this starts with Khrushchev. So they arrive, you know, 
20 years into that promise. And of course, they're interested in everyday life. Other biases, again, um, they are there. And for example, one of them is this idea of a Potomkin village. And this is not just Smith and Kaiser. So this idea that whatever Soviets are showing to foreigners is actually a carefully crafted veneer that is there to disguise something, the, the real shabby state of things. Another one is this idea of eternal Russia that I speak a lot about the book, that effectively Soviets are not, because Soviets are Russians, they are not fit for democracy and they don't do democracy, that they prefer and feel much more comfortable with uh, totalitarian, authoritarian regimes. And uh, and this is why you cannot change them. So this idea that Russia is unchanging, that it's eternal, that it's this is how it is and this is how it will be. Um, and they use these um, old notions to explain to their readers and to themselves why the Soviet Union is the way it is. And so they tap into these... Uh, explanatory frameworks that exist, uh, you know, that are there kind of that circulate in the United States and in the West more broadly regarding Russia. Mm -hmm. I I have to ask you, Dina, because I'm I'm fascinated by how you set up your parts. You have four parts to the book. So um, I should have mentioned this at the start. Part one, Spires versus Liars. I love this title, 1945 to 53. Part two, Pens instead of Projectiles, 53 to 65. Part three, Your Fight is Our Fight, um, 65 to 85. My favorite chapter, I think, is Notes from the Rotten West. And then part four, <laughs> A Moment of Truth, um, from 85 to 91. Did you have that chronology in mind? Were you going to set up breaks like you know the break after after um khrushchev is retired or the break after gorbachev uh comes to power i mean what made you arrange it that way what made me arrange it that way is uh, kind of major it's a range around times where international reporting changed or when kind of a new chapter or a new clearly distinct chapter was introduced into international reporting on both sides. Because of how their respective political systems work, a lot of that change and these like big watershed moments, they actually were framed by whoever is in power in the Soviet Union. Right? So very clearly Stalin's death, for instance, is a giant watershed moment in the history of you know, the Soviet, Soviet history, in the history of Soviet internationalism, in the history of Soviet engagement with the world, and also in the history of international reporting. Um, Stalin dies and uh, the journalistic practices, both Soviet, Soviet journalistic practices change a great deal. Soviet treatment of American correspondence changes a great deal pretty much overnight. Uh, and this is a big watershed moment. The second watershed moment is less, uh, and I placed it in 68. Um, and this is because really 68 is, is uh, kind of symbolizes developments that are building up until then. So 68 is the year of Prague Spring, uh, of um, major dissident cases in the East. And 68 is the year of discontent uh, in the United States and uh, the assassinations of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and of Robert Kennedy. And um, 
68 is an important year because journalists on both sides start realizing that the society that they had covered for many years and that they thought they had known is actually surprising them. And they were both, they were really surprised on these challenges from within, from these challenges to the Soviet system and these challenges to the American system. And they realized that they need to factor them into their reporting and to make sense of these complicated developments. So it is challenged from within, but the rival superpower is still standing. What's going on? How do we understand all that? And this really kind of spurs uh, a new distinct chapter in the history of international reporting. And not a coincidence, I think, that the best books and most books were written um, after 68 85 again is a uh, is a kind of natural uh, you know watershed moment because we know that with the arrival of Mikhail Gorbachev, Soviet-American relations again transform very swiftly, and so does international reporting transforms again. Yeah, and and I did want to ask a question about the the Brezhnev era because I know in your other work it, again you know the argument about the dynamism of the 1970s. Um, in the U.S., it's something of a dreary decade, at least that, that's my kind of popular imagine, imaginary of it. But I, I'm really intrigued in your book because there is, of course, the great suspicion about U.S. journalists in Moscow getting a little too close to the dissidents and dissident culture. I wonder if you might you know, talk a little bit about what happens in, in the long 70s, let's say, so from 68 to 82 or 85 how do these journalistic practices on both sides of the Cold War um, change over that time, if you see them changing at all? I think in, in this period, they really, it becomes very clear, this whole notion of comparative writing and reading about each other. And so, and this is where kind of one of the main arguments of the book comes from, is that during this period, journalists start writing comparatively, but they are inviting their readers to compare Russia or the United States, not with their real home country, not with the realities of what's going on, but with the utopian and the beautiful version. So the Soviets are inviting their readers to compare the United States, not with the existing Soviet Union, but with the Soviet Union where socialist utopia will be realized Similarly, American correspondents are writing in such a way that invites their readers to compare the Soviet Union with the United States of the American dream. And uh, we see this kind of uh, comparative writing really coming into its own um, during this period. And so it invites um, journalists to think about their values and the ideas of their own countries. And uh, what makes them unique, and uh, to criticize, uh, we see both sets of journalists criticizing the enemy while being silent about the shortcomings of life at home. And so, uh, Boris Tenikov, who is a Pravda correspondent, um, he goes to a West uh, Virginia mining town that is now lost all its residents because all the people who lived in this town left, except the town's one last resident who is also becomes the protagonist of Strenikov's story. 
So Strelikov tells you, you know, a very traditional tale about uh, new technologies coming and uh, replacing the miners because the capitalist owners are trying to save money. And so all these people were driven to poverty and destitution and had to leave. Um, and it is a story, on the one hand, that it's a story of one person, the human interest story. On the other hand, that it's a story about capitalism and exploitation of workers and expropriation of workers, etc. Now, somebody like Stjernikov is surely a very smart man, and so he surely, and so do his readers, know that the lives of Soviet workers are not great. And there are that there are mining towns in the Soviet unions where things are not wonderful. But there is this invitation embedded in that story to compare West Virginia not with Soviet realities, but with Soviet ideals, right? To compare these values or the absence of values and support for the worker in the American system with Soviet declare commitments to look after its workers and to make sure that they are never destitute or poor. And this is not lying. This is just inviting your readers to think uh, about the ideals of their own country. And in, in American reporting, again, you see the same kind of movement. You see Americans are being critical about things like the Soviet healthcare system, which is free of charge and available for all, and about the Soviet education system, which is, again, government-owned and pretty much free of charge, and about you know very affordable, if not free, housing. And so they find things, uh, they find aspects to criticize about these things, and they write a lot about how these things are imperfect and how these systems are malfunctioning. But at that very time, for many Americans, Something like healthcare, education, and housing is a very faraway dream. It's not accessible and not available. Again, you know, this is the late 1960s, early 1970s, kind of U.S. first recession that is happening in the 1970s. We know everything there is to know about inequality uh, in the United States. And still American audiences, again, are invited to not to think about these problems that exist in the United States, but to imagine, kind of to contrast these Soviet things with ideal American things. So what would the America of the American dream look like? What kinds of uh, things Americans would kind of could enjoy in principle in the American system? And, um, and so you can see that these uh, biases and these... Um, methods of subjective comparative writing actually play out for Soviet American correspondents alike at that time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really intrigued. You know, this is probably going to be the, the final question content wise, but how you wrap up the period of, of um, new thinking, glasnost, perestroika, and then in your conclusion, um, I find this absolutely fascinating. You you begin with RT, the Russian television channel in 2017. I know I have to go there and ask you a question because this is, you know, the age of this quote unquote real journalists and fake news. And there seem to be precedents and maybe even Russophobic precedents to the, the kind of policies that um, that were exacted or, or at least introduced in America to bar Russian journalists from access. I wonder if you might explain this because that there seems to be another book that you could write about the era of, of 
citizen journalism and digital media and new media really up through the 20 teens. So what, what made you write about that? Right. So on the one hand, the 80s is this um, really exciting moment, right? When there is uh, a lot of um, the context between people on both sides are much more immediate. There is much excitement about what's going on and people have really want to know more about each other and start. And there's also a period when there is a very conscious effort on behalf of the journalists to try and abandon these old stereotypes and to start writing in new way. Um, and um, they really kind of, they were on both sides, they were willing to work towards these goals. At the same time, there was also this persistent feeling that it is the Soviet Union that needs to learn something from the United States. Uh, there was also a little bit of disparity, which is Soviet people were much more interested in America and knew more about America and Americans than vice versa. But at this particular time, there's like a subtext of Soviet-US relations where there is this implicit assumption that the Soviet Union needs to change, it needs to learn something from the West, and therefore earn uh, goodwill and uh, trust and good attitudes from the American public opinion. So we can already see in this period that the extent and the levels of mutual excitement were slightly different. The information and how both sides understand information had played a big role in what we call Russiagate, so in the declining relations in these uh, past four years. It is also very visible that on both sides, information is associated with uh, national identity. And the information emanating from hostile power is perceived as a big national threat. And again, these particular tropes and these particular ways of thinking about each other were developed in the Cold War. And it is in the Cold War that information and the press and journalism become really central to how Americans and Soviets understand their national identity and understand what distinguishes them from each other and speak about these things. Now, I don't think that we can blame news media or media on everything that is happening or that had happened kind of, you know, between uh, 91 and until today, and certainly not in these uh, past four years. But for somebody who had been thinking about the role of news media in Russian-American relations and had been studying this for, for many years, there is there had been a lot of um, callous attitude to reporting and to coverage and to work with evidence and what kinds of things were allowed to go into reporting, the kinds of things that it was okay to publish that really contributed to this uh, decline in trust and to mutual uh, dissatisfaction and to anger and to all these things that we are seeing today. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, I, I think, um, especially the conclusion, people should read your part about ideology and how ideological baggage persists and and operates um, both in the Soviet case and in the American case overtly and covertly. So um, I want to just conclude since we're running out of time, Dina, if, if you might recommend two or three other books for our, our listenership here at New Books Network and, and perhaps, you know, just tell us a little bit about your current research and projects. Um, so the books I would like to recommend is Natalia Rudakova's aforementioned Losing Pravda, which is a fantastic story about the transition of uh, from Soviet journalism to Russian journalism and what happens to Soviet journalism upon the collapse of the Soviet Union. I learned a great deal from this book. It's beautifully written, and I think it's really, really important for understanding kind of this later period, understanding Russia today, but also understanding this uh, post-truth culture in which we operate today and which is so much on our minds. The other book I'd like to recommend is uh, To See Paris and Die by Eleonore Gilbert. Um, it's most exquisitely and beautifully written book about Russian relations with the West, Soviet relations with the West that I had the pleasure to read. It is fantastic and so insightful, uh, beautifully written, really highly recommend for understanding um, this period and kind of the broader context of Soviet imagination of uh, foreign countries. And uh, also maybe Ilfan Petrov's Little Golden America, that is the American travelogue that Ilfan Petrov wrote in 1937. It's the account of the American road trip. One of the most striking things about Soviet reporting in general is that how many of their reports could still be relevant to this day, or how many of the observations that they had made, whether before or during the Cold War, you can still see them play out in the contemporary United States. And I think it's a really refreshing attitude. Um, and a very refreshing look at America, which is both sympathetic and critical at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and maybe your current research or, or projects, what are you interested in and, and working on next? So I'm very interested in, um, in where we ended this conversation and where the book ends. I'm very interested in the period of Glasnost. And uh, I want to know more about this, and I want to know what happened and how it shaped both how Soviet media changed during that time, um, how it changed in relations, in relationship and in dialogue with um, international media and uh, various international actors, and ultimately how that period of glassness and that freedom of information shaped what happened in Russia in the 1990s and uh, after the rise of Vladimir Putin. I think that the press was a very big player in, in these stories. And, um, and this is something that I want to know more about and I would like to write about as well. I, 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 I will read that. And, you know, I mean, thank you so much for writing this book and for doing all of the research and, and interviews. It's such extensive research. I can't possibly do it justice in a podcast. Um, but thank you, um, Dina Feinberg, for joining us today on thank New Books Network. Thank you so Network. much, Stephen. And, and it was a pleasure. New Books, it, it was a joy to talk to you. And um, for our listeners, we've been speaking about Cold War Correspondence by Dina Feinberg, 
Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Frontlines, published by Johns Hopkins University Press 2021. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you so much, Stephen. It was a pleasure. And I'm Stephen Siegel here at New Books Network. Until next time.